Good morning, everyone. Please, won't you open with me to the Gospel of John in your Bibles, John chapter 18, and we're going to read together from verses 28 to 38. John 18, 28 to 38. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord? Or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. And Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your word and this wonderful journey that we are on as we peer into Christ's sufferings leading up to and including the cross. We know that we are treading on holy ground, and so we ask for your blessing again today. Open your word to our hearts and grow your church, we pray. Amen. In his book, The God Delusion, famous atheist Richard Dawkins says, and I quote, The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction, jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. One of the greatest absurdities of our fallen pride is that we think that we are able to stand above, to see things clearly, and even to judge the creator of the universe. And sometimes that judgment is active, active opposition that flows from an anger, like Dawkins' ridiculous statement made in some kind of moral superiority. Sometimes the anger flows from a, maybe a disappointment 
with something that's happened in our lives, the way that life has turned out. There's another kind of judgment as well, one that's more apathetical, sort of writing God off as unimportant to my day-to-day, unimportant to life. I learned this, this term a few years ago. So you've heard of theism, which you get, you get monotheism, which is the belief in one God, polytheism, which is the belief of many gods, you get atheism, which is the belief in no God, and apparently this is a thing, you get ap-atheism, which says, who cares? Who cares whether or not there's a God? Doesn't matter for my life. It's not important enough for my attention. Well, we're in the Gospel of John, and Jesus has begun his journey to the cross, and here today we see Jesus Christ, the Word from the beginning, incarnate God, the light of men now standing trial before men. This is the absurdity of our pride in an actual historical, physical event. For the next couple of weeks, we're going to see this trial, see how men elevate themselves to the role of judge over the Son of God in a way that must have had the the hosts of heaven wanting to empty the armories of heaven and storm the earth. In this section, the players are the Jews, the religious leaders, active in their hatred and their rejection of the Son of God. And Pontius Pilate, who's more passive, detached in his rejection, trying to convince himself that Christ's claims mean nothing to him personally. Yet John continues in the same vein that we saw him begin in this journey last week. Whatever these men say and do, Jesus stands above their scheming. He stands above their verdict as the one true king. And these events even are happening according to his clock, his plan, his purpose. It was a purpose that we saw him step into last week when the king stepped forward. And we learn in all of this that his rule is unassailable. In other words, it does not matter what you think of it whether you acknowledge it or not. His reign is unavoidable, meaning it will reach and impact your life whether you want it to or not. And he is unlike any king or leader in any political system this world has ever seen, which is good news if you are one of his subjects. As we approach this text, the structure is going to be really simple. I want to learn what we can learn when we look firstly at the, from the perspective of the Jews, the Jewish leaders, then from Pilate's perspective, and then we're going to look together at Jesus. So first the Jews, then Pilate, then Jesus. Number one, the unscrupulous religious leaders. John hasn't mentioned or shared the details of the, the trial before Caiaphas. He shared the details of the trial before that, before Annas, but not before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin. And in that trial, during that time, the Sanhedrin has mocked Christ. Jesus was spat upon. He was blindfolded and they struck him and mocked him saying, prophesy, tell us who struck you. And false witnesses were brought against him. And the Son of God was accused of blasphemy and given the death sentence. But they want that death sentence to be officially sanctioned. So they go to Rome. They go before Pilate. I I believe Pilate probably knew already of some of these events. Roman soldiers were used in the arrest of Jesus. So I believe there's been some kind of communication already. 
But Pilate comes out and he asks, what, is his, what are you accusing him of? The Jews don't seem to be ready for this. They don't want a formal trial. It looks like they come to Pilate expecting him just to hand down sentence. They say to him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. That's no case, is it? They claim some kind of special integrity here. But you pick up from the interaction between Pilate and the Jews that they weren't friends. They weren't close. Uh, and I think Pilate resents this assumption that he'll just pass down judgment. He says to them, I think to embarrass them a little bit, take him yourself and judge him by your own law. Now Pilate knew as well as they did that they weren't allowed officially to sanction the death penalty that Rome reserved for themselves. It didn't always stop the Jews. Uh, from time to time we see a stoning in Scripture. Stephen, a little while after this, is going to be killed by mob violence. But maybe in this situation they, they fear the people and they want this to be an official Roman put-down. Let's let everyone see that he's just a failed pretender, a failed Messiah. Pilate is happy to make them grovel a little bit in their position of weakness. We, we know, or the Pilate we know from history wasn't overly concerned with justice, but he would have relished the opportunity to make them jump through legal hoops and recognize his authority. But for John, in this interaction between Pilate and the Jews, there's something very ironic. In verse 28, it says they refused to enter his house, the praetorium, his, his dwelling within Jerusalem, so that they would not be defiled, it says, but could eat the Passover. Now, the Passover meal itself had been had the night before. Jesus had that meal with his disciples. But the Passover meal began a week-long festivity. The Feast of Unleavened Bread would have begun on this day. And so when, when John says they wanted to eat the Passover, we know historically most likely that just means they wanted to be involved in all of those festivities and wanted to avoid ritual defilement so that they wouldn't have to miss out. Um, the Mishnah, which is the oral tradition, it's the, the interpretation they added to their law, the law of God, it provides evidence that Jews who entered a Gentile's residence would be considered ceremonially unclean. And they would have to go through a cleansing process, a, a washing. The earliest that would have possibly happened was at sunset. And in a week like this, they didn't want to miss anything. And they certainly, in the eyes of everyone else, wanted to avoid ritual defilement. And the irony is that they are taking elaborate and scrupulous care to avoid ritual contamination at the same time that they're manipulating the ju judicial system, bringing false testimony against the Son of God. They mock Him. They beat Him. They blaspheme Him, and they scheme to commit murder. They avoid ritual defilement while being the instigators of the vilest act in human history. That's a an extreme example of where religious hypocrisy can get you. They pay attention to the finest detail of their religion without any real faith and with their hearts far from God. This is what God hated, by the way, in the worship of His people at times in the Old Testament. They were very religious. They offered sacrifice in the temple, on the altar of the Lord, and on the altar of Baal. And um, vile acts were performed throughout the country. 
And there was, um, what's the word? <laughs> it's slip my mind. Corruption. There's corruption in all their courts. In Amos 5, 21 to 23, God says, I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. And listen to this. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. Because their hearts were far from God. They thought that they could stand on their own feet. The Pharisees thought they could stand on their own feet, that they were righteous. And ultimately, what we see in them is a pitiful misunderstanding of who God is and who they were, thinking that they could stand before the Lord. That self-righteousness is the antithesis to what we are called to, to walking in the blessing of the truth of the gospel, and that's our need, our dependence upon Jesus Christ. The religious leaders hated him, but they loved the approval of men. They loved popularity, the places of honor. They loved praise and the accolades. And they couldn't come to Christ because coming to Christ meant acknowledging their need. They did not know who God was in His holiness and they did not know who they were in their sin. And so they rejected Christ for self-sufficiency, self-righteousness, self-justification. And we read the Gospels, and it's very easy for us to judge the Pharisees, isn't it? It's very easy for us to judge the religious leaders when the truth is with sinful natures, self-righteousness is the default of our hearts. So I just want to pause for a moment. I want to ask a few questions. Let us consider this. Where are there signs, perhaps, of that same pride in your life? Do you hate being confronted in your sin? When was the last time you felt convicted about sin? Is there perhaps a marked lack of grace in your life towards other sinners? Or where does your life betray the same self-sufficiency that they had? Self-pride, self-justification. Do you sometimes or often feel Hard done by, perhaps. I deserve better from God. Whenever we use the words, I deserve, there's a good chance that there's some self-righteousness in our hearts. Do you get frustrated when you don't receive the recognition that you believe is your due in the kingdom? Sheree is, um, she ministered to me this week. She's doing an online counseling course, Tuesday nights from 6 to 9, and it's bittersweet for me. It's very sweet because I think it's good for her, and she's loving it, and she's growing and learning, and it's a little bit bitter for me because I know that through that entire time, that three hours of this counseling course, she's got a case study always in her mind, and that's her husband. <laughs> and it's, it's not because she's not introspective. It's just because there's a lot of, there's an abundance of material there. And so this week she came to me after the course and she came and slammed me with the question. Um, and I think the context was dealing with uh, self-esteem, 
How do you uh, counsel people who are perfectionists or who are always angry with themselves? And she came and she said, this is what you ask. You ask them, whose eyes matter the most to you? Your own eyes? People's eyes? Or God's eyes? Whose eyes over your life matter the most to you? Now think carefully about that for yourself. Think very carefully. Is it easy for you to sin behind closed doors? And yet when you're with people, there's always a front of, I'm doing all right. I've got it all together. I'm good. I'm fine. There's a good chance, even sitting here today, that you might be fooling everybody except God himself. But that doesn't matter all that much to you. We've got to be very careful because our hearts tend in the same direction that we see in the Pharisees and the religious leaders. We have to put to death that self-justification and that self-righteousness every day, come back to our need, our need of Him. Number two, we see uninterested Pontius Pilate. Now this question hangs over Pilate's head if you read the text, because in verse 38, he gives a verdict. He says to them, I find no guilt in this man. I find no guilt in him. And yet, does Jesus go free? Does Pilate release Jesus? No, he puts him to death. And this despite a message from his own wife. She says to him, I was tormented in the night with a dream about this man. Have nothing to do with this righteous man. In other words, do not have anything to do with what's going on today. And yet he puts him to death anyway. There are extra-biblical accounts like the Jewish historians Josephus and Philo that line up with what we read in the Gospels about this man and give us some clues as to why. He was appointed uh, to this position by Emperor Tiberius in AD 26, and he held that office until AD 37. And all the sources we have confirm that he was morally weak and full of pride. He was brutal and foolish at times with his dealings with the Jews, provoking them often. One of the first things he does when he comes into office is he, he puts up the sta Roman standards, the image of Tiberius throughout the city of Jerusalem, even surrounding the temple. And that was sacrilegious to the Jews. It was idolatrous. And so they come before the praetorium and they have a sit-down strike. Many of the Jews, they sit down and say, we're not moving until you remove the standards. And Pilate comes out and sees us and he says, I'll chop off all your heads. And so they lie down and they, they actually bare their necks and say, go ahead. And then Pilate backed down and removed the standards. At one point, he, he took the sacred treasure in the temples and he used the, the money to build an, a Roman aqueduct in the city. And the people actually complained to Caesar at that time. But he sent soldiers out into the city with clubs and many Jews were killed. The Gospel of Luke tells of an incident where while Jews were worshipping in the temple, soldiers were sent by Pilate into the temple and they were massacred there so that their blood mixed, Luke says, with the, the blood of their sacrifices. At one point, the sons of Herod wrote to Caesar um, saying he, he keeps defiling the city. And Caesar actually wrote back saying, stop. Stop doing that. Allow them their religious freedom. 
And so Rome, even more and more, is growing tired of Pilate's antics. He's in a precarious situation, and the truth is he can't really afford another riot. And so in Pilate's case, there's something at stake. His power, his position is at stake, and when that's true, integrity becomes difficult, doesn't it? Justice, less of a priority. Verse 33, so Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? The Jews' problem with Jesus was theological primarily, but they couldn't bring that before Rome. They needed something that they could accuse Jesus with before Rome, and so the accusation was he says he's a king. Uh, He's a, a threat to Rome, a threat to Caesar's throne. He must be put down. Verse 34, Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Now, Jesus doesn't immediately answer in the affirmative. He will do that, but he first, what we see here is he's turning the tables a little bit on Pilate. Turning the tables a little bit. The one in the dock has a question of his own. Are you personally interested, Pilate, or are you just repeating the accusations? And in this way, Jesus is beginning an invitation an implication that who I am matters more than just, this is more than just a Jewish matter, Pilate. It's more than of importance just for the Jews. My claims are of primary importance even for you, for your life and for your soul. Well, Pilate is immediately defensive and indignant. In verse 35, he says, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? He deflects. He's saying the royal pretensions of some Jew, they they mean nothing to him. He's above those claims. Whatever Christ's claims are, they don't and won't envelop him. And Jesus answers then. He says he is a king. Not the kind of king that's a threat to Rome, but a king nonetheless. Jesus says, I've come to bear witness to the truth. And then he says to Pilate, those who belong to the truth, listen to my voice. If you belong to the truth, you will listen to my voice. Jesus' claims are infinitely important, not just for the Jews, but for Pilate and for everybody. And so Pilate does see a threat, not a threat to Rome, not in the way that the Jews are accusing, but he sees a threat to himself, to his ambitions, his power, his control, and his way of life. And so Pilate deflects again with that famous phrase, what is truth? What is truth? And the truth is Pilate is not altogether concerned about the truth. The truth is inconvenient. Pilate would have been quite at home, would he not, in in our modern world? And Pilate's the original postmodernist, relativist. Francis Schaeffer, a few decades ago, used to talk about true truth. He used to write about true truth, not because he stuttered or was prone to tautology, but because he knew and saw a shift happening in culture, a shift that has happened. The foundation is set. It's the way the world is today, a shift away from objective truth. There's no such thing people say anymore. You have your truth, and I have my truth. And Schaefer was saying, no, truth is overall. If truth is to be truth, it must be true for everyone. And in our culture of postmodernism and relativism, what we see is that that shift has even progressed 
So today we see radical individualism. In fact, that is the new truth. It's the truth that you better not go against or speak against. My feelings, my personal experience of reality, what I believe is the path to my personal fulfillment, that is the truth. And if we can take the truth out of the objective realm, if we can take truth out of the hands of God and keep it in our own hands, it means we get to live the way that we want to live and pat ourselves on the back morally for it. Because being true to ourselves is the greatest truth, is it not? This is not entirely new. Aldous Huxley was an English writer and philosopher, and he wrote at the end of the 19th century, so over, or he was born at the end of the 19th century, so he wrote about 100 years ago, I had motives for not wanting the world to have a meaning, and consequently assumed that it had none and was able without any difficulty to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. For myself, as no doubt for most of my friends, the philosophy of meaningless was essentially an instrument of liberation from a certain system of morality. We objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. There was one admirably simple method of justifying ourselves in our erotic revolt we would deny that the world had any meaning, whatever. For Pilate and for the religious leaders, Christ's claims were too much of a threat, and to follow him was too costly. The religious leaders loved the praise of men. They loved their popularity, and the cost of humility was too great. For Pilate, who loved power and wealth, the cost of integrity, the cost of self-sacrifice was too great. Jesus was no threat to Rome, but he was a threat to their self-rule. See, Christ's kingdom starts in the hearts of men. There is a throne in your heart, there's a throne in my heart, and the truth is you cannot sit on that throne while Christ is sitting on the throne at the same time. But the abdication of self-rule for the sake of having and gaining Christ as Lord is a price that too often proves too costly for people. And the sad thing is that this is true sometimes even in the church. Sometimes we come together and we, we would sing the songs, but through our lives we make a value statement about Jesus Christ by pursuing other things before Him, choosing other things over Him, loving other things more than Him. And the truth that we see, and what we're going to see now in this passage, is that He is the only sovereign worth having. He's the only King worth following and worth living for. So number three, the unexpected King of the Jews. The unexpected King of the Jews. Are you the King of the Jews? Pilate says in derision, this one beaten and bruised and pitiful before him? And Jesus answers in verse 36, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. I'm not here, he's saying, to start a rebellion and to take power by force, if that's what you're asking, Pilate. I'm no threat to Caesar's throne but the truth is, Rome, who wants to be king in Rome? 
Rome is too small for me. Jesus is expanding the expectation. Pilate wants to dismiss his claims. Jesus' claims are enveloping Pilate, saying you cannot avoid my kingdom. You cannot evade it. When he says his kingdom is not of this world, it doesn't mean that it has no bearing in this world. He is not the king of some transcendent neverland out there. His in-breaking kingdom is the kingdom that will remain when Rome is dust and ashes. It's the kingdom that will remain when all the kingdoms of men have fallen because Christ says he has overcome the world. Every king and every person, every knee will bow to the king of kings. You need to know that today. He holds the... He reigns over the eternal destinies of us all. And we will all, every one of us, stand before him. They have put this king, they have put him on trial, and they cannot even begin to comprehend that even in this moment he is reigning over these events. You see John highlight that in verse 32? When the, the Jews come before Pilate and they're haggling over what to do with this man, John says this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So he had said that in, in chapter 12, verse 32, to show what kind of death he was going to die. He says, I, when I'm lifted up from this earth, will draw all people to myself. And this is the shock of the gospel of John. This is the glory that he speaks of throughout. This is the truth that envelops the Jews. It envelops Pilate and it envelops you and me. That his kingdom is going to come and it's going to come through the cross. <coughs> he is the king who ascends his throne by being lifted up to die. The king, the Messiah, will come into his regal glory through suffering. He is beaten and he is mocked and he is nailed to a cursed tree. And while he's there, no one gives his claims a second thought. And yet even so, he is reigning. The world thinks that by laying claim to the throne, by dismissing Christ's claims, that we can build our own kingdoms. And those kingdoms can lead to our own self-fulfillment and happiness and blessing. But the truth is that rebellion and that sin will only lead to ruin and only lead even right now to hurt. But Jesus is the king who ascended the throne through the cross, and he became that curse that we might have the offer of his righteousness and the offer of perfect joy. As we sang this morning, every tear wiped away in his kingdom that will remain forever. Are you holding out are you holding out on him this morning? Are you keeping back? Are you refusing to submit to the king? Why? Why would you? Are you worried that the fact that he is sovereign over your life might not be good news for you? Maybe he's angry with you and wanting to get you back for something. Do you believe that he could be trusted with your life and with your future? that he could actually want your good and joy. Look where he is. Look where he is. He is the king who's about to be crowned voluntarily with thorns so that he can redeem and rescue you. 
It is ridiculous the way that we question that, his love and his trustworthiness. We question whether his sovereignty is good news over our lives. Maybe the cost of following Christ means something difficult for you. Maybe it means giving something up that you don't want to give up. Maybe you're looking at your life and there's a cost that you feel is too great. This passage must make us see that there is no cost that following Christ can call us into that is not made worth it by His perfect rule and His good rule. Jesus is not like any other king. He's not like any earthly king. Verse 37, Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. It's an idiom that doesn't really translate well or we don't quite get in the English. Scholars say he's answering in the affirmative here, like the other Gospels, you're right in saying that I am. And he says, for this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. The way that men take political power is the opposite to the way of this king. Imagine a politician who only ever told the truth. We, we wish for that, right? But you know the truth in our world? He wouldn't be in that position if he only ever told the truth. Because that's not the way that our world works. That's not the way that men get ahead. But Jesus builds his kingdom by testifying only to the truth. The truth about himself, that he is truth. And he invades our world with truth because he is the very self-disclosure of God. He comes and he says, no, by, no God by looking at me, by knowing me. And that threatens our self-autonomy. That threatens our self-rule. It threatens the way that people want to live because it demands submission. It demands trust. It demands our all. See, if there is a king of truth, and if I disagree with that king, then the problem is with me. It's not with him, right? I've got to change my ways. I don't get to change him to suit what I want and my desires. We don't like that kind of vulnerability. But his rule is unlike any other king. His rule is not oppressive. It is loving. It is gracious. I promise you, it's compassionate. The kings of men, they trample over the weak, but he is the one of whom it is said, a bruised reed he will not break, a faintly glowing wick he will not snuff out. His decree is good and it leads to our flourishing. Does it lead sometimes to sacrifice and to suffering? Yes, it does, but it leads to joy everlasting. He is the eternal king who offers an eternal kingdom and who died to lift his subjects up out of death and into life. He came to show us God and to rescue us from our aversion to the truth and from the tyranny and destruction of self-rule. And he died to give us abundant life. Surely he alone more than any man and more certainly than self is a sovereign worth loving and trusting. And Pilate, Jesus looks Pilate in the eyes with a gravity that contrasts Pilate's levity. And he says, I'm not the king that you expected. I'm not a king to dismiss and kill. My kingdom cannot be evaded and ignored. And he's looking at you and he's looking at me today in the eye. 
and he's demanding our attention. Charles Spurgeon wrote saying, trifle not with Christ, whose hands and feet were nailed to the accursed tree for sinners such as you. Trifle not with his precious blood, for that is your only hope of redemption. Trifle not with the Holy Spirit, for if he should leave you to perish, your case would be hopeless. Trifle not with the gospel. What would the lost in hell not give to hear another proclamation of mercy? The devil does not trifle. He is very earnestly seeking your destruction. God and Christ and the Holy Spirit are not trifling with you, and I'm not trifling with you either. Are you trifling with the Son of God today? Is your view of His kingship and His reign too small? Do you struggle right now to trust Him? To trust that He knows what is best. Every command that He's given has been given for our good and our joy and His glory. Let the gravity of this king drive out the levity that might exist in your heart and consider properly the claims of Christ over your life. Let's pray. Holy Father, there are times where we do struggle to believe that, that your commands are always for our good. But we know that we are your children and that you love us with a care that we, we can't even match for our own children. Help us to trust you more. Help us to know that what you command is given for our good and for your glory. Oh God, help, help us to care more and love more and want more your glory. Be glorified in our lives, in our decisions, in the way that we we parent our children and love our spouses and, and speak to those in the world around us. Help us to love your glory more in the way that we come back to you day after day, acknowledging our need and our dependence upon you. Oh, be glorified in your church. Help us to see more clearly the King on his throne, the King in all his beauty. Help us, we pray. Amen.